Christ is the first begotten from the dead, the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep. He is the firstborn among many brethren. This truth that glorification must wait for the resurrection of the body advises us that glorification is something upon which all the people of God will enter together at the same identical point in time. There is no priority for one above another. In this respect it radically differs from death and the glory with Christ upon which saints enter on that event. Each saint of God who dies has his own appointed season and therefore his own time to depart and be with Christ. We can see that this event is highly individualized, but it is not so with glorification. One will not have any advantage over another. All together will be glorified with Christ. The New Testament lays peculiar stress upon this fact. We might think it unnecessary to accent it. We might say, the important truth is that all will be glorified, and all else is of little significance. It is not so. The Apostle Paul found it necessary to inform, or perhaps remind, the Thessalonian believers that even those who will not die, but be living at the advent of the Lord, will not have any advantage over those who died, because, he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so the living and the resurrected dead, who died in Christ, will together be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. Again the same apostle says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Glorification, then, is the instantaneous change that will take place for the whole company of the redeemed when Christ will come again the second time without sin unto salvation and will descend from heaven with the shout of triumph over the last enemy. Then will come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55. There is much for our instruction in this fact that the final act of the application of redemption is one that affects all alike at the same moment of time in the final accomplishment of God's redemptive design. It is as a body that the whole company of the redeemed will be glorified. This is highly consonant with all that of which glorification is the consummation. It is union with Christ that binds together all the phases of redemptive love and grace. It is in Christ the people of God were chosen before the foundation of the world. It was in Christ they were redeemed by his blood. He loved the church and gave himself for it. The people of God were quickened together with Christ and raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5 verse 25 and chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. Christ wrought redemption with the design that he might present the church to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5.27 When heaven's design will reach its grand finale, Christ will come again in the glory of his Father. He will also come in his own glory. It will be the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 But this will also be the revelation of the sons of God. Romans 8.19 there will be a perfect coincidence of the relation of the Father's glory, 
of the relation of the glory of Christ and of the liberty of the glory of the children of God. The glorification of the elect will coincide with the final act of the Father in the exaltation and glorification of the Son. But if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Romans 8.17 There is heavenly congruity here, and it is congruity which exemplifies the marvel of divine love, wisdom, and power, as it also vindicates the glory of God. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Isaiah 2.11 Glorification is an event which will affect all the people of God together at the same point of time in the realization of God's redemptive purpose. It will bring to final fruition the purpose and grace which was given in Christ Jesus before times eternal. See 2 Timothy 1.9 These truths respecting the glorification of the people of God are complementary to other tenets of the Christian hope. Number 1. Glorification is associated and bound up with the coming of Christ in glory. The advent of Christ visibly, publicly, and gloriously does not appeal to a great many people who profess the name of Christ. It appears to them to be too naive for the more advanced and mature perspective of present-day Christians. This attitude is quite akin to that of which Peter warned his readers. There shall come in the last day scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. It is the same kind of unbelief which entertains doubt respecting the virgin birth of our Lord, or denies the substitutionary atonement, or spurns the thought of our Lord's bodily and physical resurrection, which can be indifferent to the glorious advent of our Lord on the clouds of heaven. And this unbelief becomes peculiarly aggravated when it scorns the very idea of a return of the Lord bodily, visibly, publicly. If that conviction and hope do not stand at the center of our perspective for the future, it is because the barest outlines of our frame of thought are destitute of Christian character. The hope of the believer is centered in the coming of the Savior again the second time, without sin unto salvation. Paul calls this the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior Christ Jesus. Titus 2.13 The believer who knows him whom he has believed and loves him whom he has not seen, says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 20 So indispensable is the coming of the Lord to the hope of glory that glorification for the believer has no meaning without the manifestation of Christ's glory. Glorification is glorification with Christ. Remove the latter, and we have robbed the glorification of believers of the one thing that enables them to look forward to this event with confidence with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But rejoice, Peter wrote, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. 1 Peter 4.13 Number 2. The glorification of believers is associated and bound up with the renewal of creation. It is not only believers who are to be delivered from the bondage of corruption, but the creation itself also. The creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected it. Romans 8.20 But the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8.21 And when will this glory of creation be accomplished? 
Paul leaves us in no doubt. He tells us expressly that the terminus of the groaning and travailing of creation, groaning and travailing because of the bondage of corruption, is nothing other than the adoption, the redemption of our body. Romans 8.23 This is just saying that not only do believers wait for the resurrection, as that which will bring the liberty of their glory, but the creation itself is also waiting for this same event. And that for which it is waiting is that in which it will share, namely, the liberty of the glory of the children of God. This is Paul's way of expressing the same truth which is elsewhere described as the new heavens and the new earth. In Peter's words, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. 2 Peter 3.13 And Peter associates that cosmic regeneration with that which believers look for and hasten the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements being burned up shall melt. Second Peter 3.12 When we think of glorification then, it is no narrow perspective that we entertain. It is a renewed cosmos, new heavens and new earth, that we must think of as the context of the believer's glory, a cosmos delivered from all the consequences of sin, in which there will be no more curse but in which righteousness will have complete possession and undisturbed habitation. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21:27. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4. One of the heresies which has afflicted the Christian church and has been successful in polluting the stream of Christian thought from the first century of our era to the present is the heresy of regarding matter, that is, material substance, as the source of evil. It has appeared in numerous forms. The apostles had to combat it in their day, and the evidence of this appears quite plainly in the New Testament especially in the epistles. John, for example, had to combat it in the peculiarly aggravated form of denying the reality of Christ's body as one of flesh. And so he had to write, Many false prophets are gone out into the world. In this ye know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ as come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not Jesus is not of God. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. The meaning of this is that the confession of Jesus Christ is confession to the effect that he came in the flesh, and the denial of this is flatly a denial of Jesus. In reference to that hearsay, the test of orthodoxy was to confess the flesh of Jesus, that is to say that he came with a material, fleshly body. Another form in which this heresy appeared is to regard salvation as consisting in the emancipation of the soul or spirit of man from the impediments and entanglements of association with the body. Salvation and sanctification progress to the extent to which the immaterial soul overcomes the degrading influences emanating from the material and fleshly. This conception can be made to appear very beautiful and spiritual, but it is just beautiful paganism. It is a straight thrust at the biblical doctrine that God created man with body and soul and that he was very good. It is also aimed at the biblical doctrine of sin, which teaches that sin has its origin and seat in the spirit of man, not in the material and fleshly. 
This heresy has appeared in a very subtle form in connection with the spirit of glorification. The direction it has taken in this case is to play on the chord of the immortality of the soul. This seems a very innocent and proper emphasis, and, of course, there is some truth in the contention that the soul is immortal. But whenever the focus of interest and emphasis becomes the immortality of the soul, then there is a grave deflection from the biblical doctrine of immortal life and bliss. The biblical doctrine of immortality, if we may use that term, is the doctrine of glorification, and glorification is resurrection. Without resurrection of the body from the grave and the restoration of human nature to its completeness after the pattern of Christ's resurrection on the third day and according to the likeness of the glorified human nature in which he will appear on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, there is no glorification. It is not the vague sentimentality and idealism so characteristic of those whose interest is merely the immortality of the soul. Here we have the concreteness and realism of the Christian hope epitomized in the resurrection to life everlasting and signalized by the descent of Christ from heaven with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. In like manner, the Christian's hope is not indifferent to the material universe around us, the cosmos of God's creation. It was subjected to vanity, not willingly. It was cursed for man's sin. It was marred by human apostasy. But it is going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption, and its deliverance will be coincident with the consummation of God's people's redemption. The two are not only coincident as events, but they are correlative in hope. Glorification has cosmic proportions. We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. 2 Peter 3.13 Then the end, when he delivers over the kingdom to God and the Father, and God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 28. This is the end of the book. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.